shepherd I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the thing you've been searching for your entire life? What if the wisdom or the power that you seek isn't hidden in some distant land waiting to be discovered, but it's actually been available to you for thousands of years and you just haven't known where to look? What if the kickstart you've been looking for in your spiritual life is waiting for you? Not waiting in the new and shiny, but waiting in the old and ancient. Waiting in traditions that have been taking place in the church for centuries. He leads me in the path of In the stillness and the quiet of these traditions, God reveals himself to us. And in the asking, we find out that he's always been there waiting, waiting in the simple traditions of the church. Beyond the past, beyond the present, beyond the future. They're timeless. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, it's good to be back with you guys this weekend. And over the last few weeks, we've been in this series that we've been calling Timeless. And we've been talking about why we do the things we do as a church. And by now, I think you're probably realizing the church isn't just something, you know, we show up and do on the weekend when there's not enough snow to go skiing, right? Or it's not warm enough to go to the beach. Or, hey, the kids don't have a soccer game. Let's go to church this weekend, right? As I've said since we started Hope Community Church, I believe that the, hope, the church, as Jesus Christ designed the church to function, to work. I believe that the church is the hope of the world. Hey, give up on it, people. The government is not the hope of the world. Anybody figure that out yet? They can't fix a pothole. How in the world are they going to fix the world? In fact, I'd recommend all of you get off of social media and quit even talking about what's going on in politics and be salt and light in the world. The church is the hope of the world. Education is not the hope of the world, okay? Industry is not the hope of the world. The church, as Jesus Christ designed it to operate, it is the hope of the world, which means if the church is going to be the hope of the world, it can't operate like a country club. Now, I've been a member of a church, and this may shock some of you, I have been a member of a country club. It was kind of a low-rent country club, but I was a member of a country club. And I got to be honest, I wasn't a member very long. It didn't end all that well. I mean, me being at a country club, that's kind of like putting whipped cream on an onion. I mean, it just didn't fit. It just, it just wasn't right, right? So I've been a member of a church, and I've been a member of a country club. But I can tell you what the biggest difference is. When you're in a member of a country club, it's about privilege, right? Membership comes with privileges, and what am I going to get out of it? What are you going to do for me? But the church, for it to operate the way God wants it to operate, as Christians, we have to ask the question, what am I going to give and what am I going to do? See, that's why at Hope Community Church, we're not really honestly all that interested in whether or not you become a member of the church or not. We're still going to bury you anyway, right? We're going to marry you anyway. But we're very concerned that you become a ministry partner so that we can work together and actually reaching the triangle and changing the world. That's what we've been trying to do from the day we showed up here. See, see, we want God to show up. We wanted to do that from the start. And as a result, God has graciously allowed us to be involved in a lot of cool things here at Hope Community Church. I mean, 20-some years ago, we sent our first little mission team down to the rural area of Haiti, a little area known as Zerange, only 40 miles outside of Port-au-Prince. It takes you eight hours to get there. 
the last hour through a river to get to people that you wouldn't believe it. But as a result, today, we have a church that has spun off two more churches. We have a school that has 512 students that's raked as one of the highest educational institutions in the nation of Haiti. And we have two medical clinics there that are staffed by Haitian nationals that see over 5,000 patients a year. These are patients that wouldn't see anybody at those medical clinics. God allowed us. He's done immeasurably more. By the way, every year, Laura and I host a fundraiser. This year, it's going to be March 22nd. March the date. It's at Ray's Restaurant on Buck Jones Road. We partner with Ray's. This year, all that we raise is going to the Hope for Haiti Foundation to keep going there, what's going there. But see, it's incredible what God's allowed us to do. We've been in CAR, and, and literally we've raised and invested millions of dollars in drilling wells in the poorest country on the planet because we found out that could be the number one thing that could change their quality of life. And then we brought in an African-trained pastor to start a church there. And then we shifted our energies to Uganda where we addressed the orphan crisis. Do you know that at that time the median age in Uganda was 15, but we were able to partner with Watoto and have a part of that, of seeing that change, all of the orphans because of the AIDS crisis and civil war, and God has done amazing things there. Right now, we got works going on everywhere. Hey, you want to go on a mission trip? Men, Nicaragua, Sunica. We're going to go from March 28th to April 4th. We need 10 men who just want to get their hands dirty and build some stuff, okay? We got about five guys signed up, but we want that trip to go. If you want to know more about it, just contact the church office. But God, when we do our part, he has just shown up and done some amazing things. But it's not just globally, just locally. Ship of Zion, we partner with them. And we found out that they, they exist in what's known as a food desert. No fresh meat or produce within seven miles. And so we partner with Whole Foods. And now there's a grocery store there thanks to Hope Community Church and Whole Foods and the generosity behind it. Last year as a church, we gave, up, we gave away about 160 tons of food. Invested thousands of dollars into our, our community for counseling and, and sometimes paying utilities and sometimes helping with transitional housing, all kinds of things. Remember we did Project Classroom where we brought in almost five tons of school supplies so teachers wouldn't have to reach into their own pockets and buy school supplies for their classroom. And some of you even went and volunteered and helped teachers unload cars, set up their classroom, provided lunch, spread mulch. Because, see, we're a church that believes when we do our part, God can show up and do amazing things. In fact, in some ways, I feel like we've allowed, God's allowed us to experience what Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This is what he said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Who can do more than we could ever ask or we ever imagine? I'll tell you why that, that verse is so important. It's important because we want to make sure that what we're involved in, what we're doing as a church, what's happening around here, it isn't a result of just our intelligence, our efforts, our energy, our, strate our strategy, or our planning. It's a result of God showing up and blowing our minds. But see, for God to do his part, to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We have to do our part. So what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes is what I believe it's going to take, this opportunity we have to go to the next level when it actually comes to fulfilling our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world. I want to talk about our part. And I've always said I'm not, I'm not very good on vision casting, but I'm going to give it my best shot, okay? So if you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 19, or maybe you have a phone, you want to click your way over there, whatever you guys do with those things. But uh, if not, we're just going to put the verses up on the screen. But let me just say this as you're turning. 
as Christians, while we are on this earth, God has basically given us three ways that we can invest in his kingdom. Let me put it another way. Three ways that we can be involved as Christians to actually change the world. He's given us some time, he's given us some talent, and he's given us some treasure. And we love to talk about two of those areas. The third one seems to be a little bit off limits. For example, if I didn't talk about our time and how we spend our time as Christians, you would probably accuse me of not doing my job as a pastor and you would actually be right. Because time is one of those irretrievable values in life. You can, you can spend it once, but once you spend it, you can't get it back. That's just, that's just the way that life is. But money, you can make more money. But you can't, you, can't, you can't get back more time. So I need to talk about as Christians how we actually use our time wisely. Another area is our talents, how God has gifted us, how he's wired us, how he's put us together. And God has given us our talents so the church can function smoothly, so that it can, it can, it can, it can function efficient, efficiently. You know, we're talking about the Serve Initiative, and it's the opportunity for you to use your time and talent to do your thing around Hope Community Church to make a difference so we can run more smoothly, more efficiently. And we have about 2,000 people that serve every month so that we can open the doors to all of our campuses and do what we do in the community. But, you know, honestly, we do need about 650 more people to get out of the, out of the stands and to get on the field to make a difference. And if I didn't talk about us doing that, Jesus said, you'll be great if you serve. I didn't talk about that. You were like, man, he's not doing his job. But let me address that third area. The area of our treasure, our money. I'm going to get some emails. In fact, I just said money. Some of you are sending me an email right now as I speak. He said money. I'm sending him an email. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is that? Ah, it's because money's huge to us. I mean, let's be honest. It's an extension of who we are. But this is what I want you to understand. This weekend, what I'm going to be talking to you about has nothing to do with hope wanting your money. This weekend is about the bigger picture. It's the broader picture of how we handle what God has given, what God has entrusted to us. How do we handle our treasure, our talent? How do we handle our time in such a way that we can actually be involved in changing the world? How do we handle what God gives us to use for his glory? Now, that may be part of the problem. I mean, maybe you weren't aware of the fact that everything that we have, you may think you're really good at what you do, but everything we have it's on loan to us from God. God owns it all. And if you don't believe me, listen to these verses. This is what God said in Job 41, verse 11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And it's like, boom, God dropped the mic, right? Any questions? Here's another one, Exodus 19, verse 5. The whole earth is mine. Any questions here? Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, God owns it all. And whatever we have, think about this, we're just managers of his stuff. And so the real issue is, what are we going to do with the stuff that God has entrusted to us? Because at the end of the day, we're all breathing his air. At the end of the day, we're all living off of his Dying. Now, Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 19, and you're probably familiar with the story there, uh, the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. The wee little man was he who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. See, that's some old school Baptist rapping right there. You didn't even know it. You got, see, but see, it's a great story about a guy who was a tax collector that everybody hated, and he got up in a tree because he heard Jesus was coming through town, and not only did he see Jesus, Jesus saw him. And he went to his house, and Jesus had an encounter with him, and by the time he finished, Zacchaeus walked outside and said, I'm guilty, I apologize, I'm returning everything that I've stolen from you as a tax collector, and everybody's stunned. 
And while everybody is standing there still grappling with Zacchaeus' sudden change of heart, like what happened in that house between Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus realizes, wow, I got a crowd. I ought to tell them a parable. And so Jesus tells them the parable of the mina. It's found in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. So right away, you see that there's five elements in this parable that you have to understand if you're going to understand the parable. First of all, there's this man of noble birth. Now, just so you know, in the story, this is Jesus talking about himself. Jesus is the man of noble birth. He knows that in a few days, he's going to die on a cross. He's going to be put in a tomb. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to spend 40 more days on the earth. And then he's finally going to ascend back to heaven, back to his home. And then at some time, only the father knows when. The son doesn't even know when. Jesus is going to return to this earth, and he's going to establish his authority as a king. So he is the one of noble birth. Second, there's a group of servants. This is us. All of us who are Christians, believers, all of us who have recognized that I need to be saved. That's why God gave me a savior. We responded to the gospel. So we're in this story. And then third, there's a certain amount of money that's given to the story. Uh, given to these servants in the story is 10 minas, and I won't take the time to get to it, but in today's currency, it's about $2,500. It's a significant amount of money. And then there are very specific instructions about what they're supposed to do with this money. Luke 19, verse 13, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So I take it that these servants, they have complete freedom what to do with it, how they want to cultivate it, invest it, multiply it. They can do whatever they want. But fifth, there's going to be accountability. In other words, when the nobleman returns as a king, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Now, in the story, Jesus doesn't say how long that the nobleman was gone. But when he returns as king, just as he promised, he called the service together because he wants to find out, what did you do with what I gave you? How did you invest it? How did you multiply it? How did you grow it? Well, how did they do? Well, they got three different answers. The first one's in Luke chapter 19, verse 16. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned 10 more. Pretty good. Multiplied it 10 times. Maybe the stock market was hot. He got involved, right? And he goes before the king, and the king's like, good job. Well done, right? Verse 18, the second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. So he multiplied it five times. Maybe he's flipping houses. I don't know. But the king says, awesome. So proud of you. Keep up the good work. But then you get to verse 20. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. In other words, I took what you gave me, I wrapped it up securely in a handkerchief, and I put it in the back of my sock drawer, and here it is. In other words, he didn't steal it. He didn't try to invest it and lose it. He didn't take it and spend it on himself. He just doesn't do anything with it. But I want you to notice the king's response in Luke 19, verse 22. You lazy servant. Nope. What's he say? You wicked servant. And I read, well, that's quite a statement. Wicked. I mean, good gracious. 
When I think of somebody being wicked, I'm, you know, you murder somebody, you're wicked. You know, you commit adultery, you're wicked. You steal from somebody, you're wicked. Maybe you have a cat. I don't know, you, you, you finish the sentence, right? Now, this guy is certainly lazy, right? He's certainly unindustrious. He's not probably ever going to appear on the cover of magazine, make, you know, the Fortune 500 list, but wicked. I mean, let's be honest. That seems a little extreme. So why would the king, Jesus, call this servant, us, wicked? Well, think about it this way. The servant was declared wicked when what he did was measured against what he could have done. Let me say it again. He was declared wicked when what he could have done, in other words, the opportunity he had was measured against what he actually did. Now that tells me, and here's a spoiler alert in case you have to leave early. If we decide as Christians that we're just going to kind of sit on what God has entrusted to us, our time, our talent, our treasure, and we choose not to use it the way God designed it to be used, which is to what? To build his kingdom, to change the world. Listen, he's not going to look at us and say, you know what, you're, you're lazy. Or boy, she's a slacker. He's going to look at us and say, you're wicked. That's wicked. That's disgusting to me. And I think Jesus' point is pretty clear. Hey, whatever I gave you while you're on this earth, I expect you to manage it well. I would paraphrase it another way. You can't sit on your assets and expect to change the world. <laughs> now, remember, it was Jerusalem. They had donkeys back in those days. So it all, it all, it all comes together. Now, couple of obvious lessons that just kind of jump off of this page of this simple little parable as it relates to how we manage the stuff that God has given us, remembering that God owns it all. Here's the first one. When we invest in God's kingdom, it's an investment of his resources, not ours. Have you ever given and thought, man, I really sacrificed? No, you didn't. You just gave back what to, to God what was already God's. You're just managing his resources. And he cares how we handle his resources, and so we better handle his resources with care. In other words, what God has given us, he has given us to make a difference in this world. And he says, now I expect you to use it wisely. So we have to remember, we're not managing our stuff. We like to think we are, but at the end of the day, we're managing God's stuff. Here's the second. We will ultimately give an account to God for how we manage his resources. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about it. You can read it on your own. One day, if you're a Christian, you're going to stand before Jesus. And it's not to determine whether or not you're a Christian. That's already been determined or you wouldn't even be in this line. The fact that you're in that line waiting to say hi to Jesus means you are in. But what he is going to ask you is this. Okay, so the time, the treasure, the talent I gave you, what did you do with it? And he is going to reward us for all eternity accordingly, right? Now, that may stress you out a little bit. And you're like, what is the right answer to that question? Well, Paul helps us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because Paul from prison in Rome, he's waiting to be beheaded. He's taking Timothy under his ring. Timothy's going to carry the torch of the gospel. He's been mentoring him. So from a Roman prison, he writes Timothy a letter. And this is what he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Tell those who are rich in this world. And some of you are like, whew, that's not me. Well, hang on, not so quickly. Did you know that if you have an average household income of $49,000, I know we're in the middle of a political season and it's not all about billionaires and millionaires and haves and have-nots. Let me just be honest with you. If you have an average household income of $49,000, you're in the top 1% of the richest people on the planet. $49,000. Top 1%. And I'd done, I checked. 
you people in Kerry and Fuquay and Holly Springs and Apex, you know what the average income is? Double that. So I think it's safe to say we fall into this category of those who are rich in this world. By the way, do you know what the standard was for being rich in the first century? If you had one change of clothing. You were considered rich. Most people wore their clothes until they rotted off and then they got more. So if you had a change of clothing, you were actually considered rich. So this is what Paul writes to Timothy. Those who are rich in this world, tell them not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. But their trust should be in the living God who richly gives us. Now, this is interesting. All we need for our enjoyment. And so it's like if you have it, enjoy it. God gave it to you to enjoy. But don't forget this. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of real life. You've heard the old saying, you can't take it with you. I've even said you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Well, guess what? I found one. I have a picture. Of, I'm pretty sure that's Fuquay, by the way. There is a picture of a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I can't say that anymore. But let me just say this. I am still going to stand by the fact you can't take it with you. You cannot take it with you. But here's what I want to tell you. You can send it ahead. And you send it ahead by investing in others. It's considered an eternal investment. Think about this. It's timeless. Now, I know financially, the markets are doing good. You know, real estate's doing good. And I know some of you are doing okay in the market. I've never bought a stock in my life. So if you're doing good, good for you. Or maybe you're doing good with the real estate, good for you. You're investing and it's growing. Let me ask you this. How are you doing when it comes to eternal investments? Because at the end of the day, when you stand before Jesus, he doesn't really care what your bank account is or how many houses you own. He's going to want to know, for my kingdom's benefit, what did you do with what I gave you? That's what the parable of the mine is all about. How do we measure God's stuff. Now, let me just say this. The church for years, we've, we've kind of taken the rap that all we want is to get your money. You know, and that's people, I don't want to go to church because you just want my money, right? And uh, that's why we have never taken an offering at Hope Community Church. We want you to show up and feel like no obligation to give whatsoever. If you want to give here, you'll figure out how to do it. You can go to the website or the app. So with us this weekend, we thought we would do what we've done a few times before. We decided this weekend, we're going to give you money. We're going to give you money. Because this weekend, we're launching our fifth minor project that we've done in 25 years of hope. We have set aside $110,000 that we're going to give back to you at all of our campuses this weekend. I'll tell you in just a second why we're going to give it to you and what we want to do with it. But if you're here and you're over, you're 18 or over, I want you to stand up. And we have some incredible serving people in the back. And Come on, everybody just stand up if you're over 18. It doesn't matter if you're visiting. You're going to get some free money, people. Uh, they're going to give you an envelope. Do not open it. In that envelope, there is real money, Okay. It reminds me of the guys that, you know, decided to counterfeit some money and it messed up and it came out $21 bills. They thought, well, we got to destroy all this. And they said, no, we'll go to the mountains where all those hillbillies live. They won't know the difference and we'll exchange it. So they go to the mountains, they go to Boone and they go into a store and say, hey, could you break this $21 bill for me? And they said, yeah, would you like three sevens or seven threes? See, that's, that's not real money. There's real money in that envelope, so do not throw it away. Now, as soon as you get your envelope, just sit down. And that way, if you're standing, they will get that envelope to you. Sit down. In that envelope, there's either a $10 bill, a $20 bill, a $50 bill. Some of you may even have a $100 bill. 
And just keep listening to me while they're passing out the money. This is what we're going to ask you to do. Just like in the story of the, the mine, if you've been here for a while, you know this gig. We're going to ask you to take that money and figure out a way to grow it and multiply it. And then at some point, you're going to bring it back. Now, before you freak out thinking, oh, no, how am I going to do this all by myself? You don't have to do it by yourself. You can partner with your small group, family, neighbors, maybe fraternity or sorority. You know, a few years ago when we raised money to buy buildings in Haiti to, to, to expand our ministry there, we did a minor project just like this. I think we gave out $40,000 in those days and turned it into about $800,000. But Laura got $10, I got $10, and our neighbors each got $10. We came to the conclusion, God does not trust us with a whole lot. But anyway... <laughs> We got our $10 and we put our heads together. We thought, you know, the mailbox post in our neighborhood looked kind of shabby. So we thought, we printed up flyers. We're raising money for Haiti. We would love to straighten up your mailbox post and repaint it. And we'll do it for this amount of money. And people went crazy. And so after we went, we, we, we went and bought $40 worth of paint and rollers. And, and, and then we, we got more money. We went and bought some more stuff and painted more posts. And we ended up taking $40 and we were able to give back to that Haiti project $2,400. Just because... It was an opportunity to see God show up and do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Maybe you're here and you're like, Mike, man, my thing's making money. I don't really have time to do this. Then fine, since God has gifted you to make money, which I think is a gift, feel free on your own. I'm serious, just multiply it. If you get a 10, a 20, 50, multiply it by 10. Give, a church, give it back to the church as a part of the minor project. I don't really care how you do it, but I want you to multiply it. You're more creative than we could ever be. In fact, I want to show you a little video of a minor project we did four or five years ago in a small group that began something they're still doing today. It will give you some ideas. Watch the site screen. So I'm John Batchelor. Um, our small group started um, our minor project four years ago. Um, we had seven couples in our small group, and um, when we left that weekend, we came back with 80 bucks. We got together and we started discussing what Mike's mission was, was to reach a triangle, change the world, and impact, right? So, so make an effort to take that money, multiply it um, in the community, and then give it back out. We brainstormed for a little while. My wife and I had been part of a major big church in Northern Virginia, um, which they did meals at Thanksgiving. And we thought this would be a good idea to maybe try to um, help grow, reach people where they are and try to feed, feed them a meal. My wife, Lindsay, she had uh, seen these jars and the cookie jars and had all the ingredients in it to, to make chocolate chips. And she said, well, maybe we can make these jars. Does it cost a lot? The ingredients are cheap and we can then sell them to our friends and coworkers. And so as we're making the jars, we really want to make something that was impactful for um, the recipient of the jars. And the idea was that we wanted to not only give them the instructions of making the cookies, but on the back side of the jar, what we have listed is, is the parable of mina. And so the person that's receiving this jar, the message is being transferred to them, maybe not verbally by us, but through, through God and obviously through the, the ticket that's on there. I think initially we, we had enough money to make about 40 jars. Well, in three days, we had sold out of all the jars. So we took the money from that and we made more jars. They were selling faster than we could even imagine. Um, I mean, people wanted to buy them before we could even make them. And so we really started recognizing that God was really showing up in this mission. And we really felt called to try to do everything that we could to, to make these jars, but also to get people involved. Um, compile our resources from not only our time and uh, financially, but as well as trying to reach other people within the community to sell the jars for us, um, but then also to 
go and meet people where they are. So we take this simple cookie, which is just a bunch of ingredients that we get and pallets and pallets, and it turns into families getting together uh, to make these, but also tell the story of why they are, uh, that they're here to serve other people, that we get to turn just a simple cookie jar, a simple cookie, uh, into a meal and a family feeling loved. We thought this was gonna be about the families that we were trying to feed. And I think what a lot of us would say, a lot of the volunteers, it's, it's about the impact that it's had on our families and our friends. So the first year we had 80 bucks. Um, we, we raised enough money ultimately to feed 40 families that year, which was incredible. Um, we, we, it's about $25 per, per box that we make. Um, this past year we fed 250 families. So ultimately over the past four years, we've raised over $60,000. It's such an honor that God has just given us responsibility, but also um, has trusted us with his resources to continue to spread the word of his son, Jesus. That's a group of people who saw God show up and do immeasurably more than they ever could ask. Or they would have never imagined that $60,000. Some of you have never experienced that in your life. This could be that, that time. So there are a couple of instructions I want to give you. First of all, you can't spend this money on yourself. So don't just run out and go to Taco Bell or Chick-fil-A, okay? Second, don't just give it back to the church because every year people walk out and put it in the offering box and say, I'm not going to do this. You know what? I would call you wicked you're the wicked person in here. Like, I'm not doing anything with this. Here's the third one. We want you to multiply it, and we want you to return it by April 19th. That's the weekend after Easter, so you have eight weeks. You have eight weeks. That's plenty of time to do it. You have eight weeks. Now, what are we going to do with it? Because this is why it's so crucial to us to really take reaching the triangle and changing the world to a level we've never taken it to before. To do that, i got to tell you something about John 17. John 17 really is the Lord's Prayer. We say, our Father who art in heaven is the Lord's prayer. That's not the Lord's prayer. That's the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, we've watched you pray. Tell us how to pray. And Jesus is like, well, when you pray, say something like this. John 17 is actually the Lord's prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And in this prayer, Jesus, he's just a few hours from the cross. He prays for a few things. First of all, he prays for himself. Like, he's 33 years he's been away from the Father. He can't wait to get home. He can't wait to get back to heaven. So he's like, I know there's one thing standing between me and getting back to heaven, and that's death on the cross. Father, help me finish strong. So he prays for himself, and then he prays for the 12 disciples. He says, I've protected them up to this point. Now, Father, I need you to protect them from Satan. And then he shifts his focus, and Jesus prays for us. John 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, not just the 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you, that's me, if you've responded to the gospel. In fact, I have written in my Bible, besides John 17, 20, Jesus prayed for me. He's like, I'm not just praying for these disciples that I poured my life into. I'm, I'm praying for the ones that they're not going to lead into a relationship with me. And I'm praying for believers in the 4th century and the 8th century and, and the Reformation and the Great Awakening and and England, and I'm praying for those who are going to become believers in the 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century. I am praying for all of them, and verse 21 tells us what Jesus prayed for, that all of them, all believers, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And notice why Jesus prayed it in verse 23, then. Then, once they're one, then the world will know that you sent me. Now think about this. Put it in context. Jesus is his last few hours on earth. He's praying. He could have asked the Father for anything, and he prayed for us. And he could have asked for anything on our behalf. He could have prayed for our marriages, our health, our finances, our family, and he prayed that we would be unified. 
that with all believers there would be a sense of oneness. Not just those of us here at Hope. God's really blessed us here at Hope when it comes to unity. All believers at all the gospel-centered churches in the triangle and throughout the world. Why? Verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was this so important to Jesus? Well, it may surprise you, but this was actually Jesus' strategy to change the world. And it's interesting. There's no mention of missionaries. There's no mention of church planning organizations, mega churches. There's no mention of great ministries like Young Life or Campus Crusade. There's nothing in here about taking care of the poor, feeding the hungry. There's nothing in here about having a toy, a toy store at Christmas, you know, for underprivileged families, which we should do all of those things. Those are all good things. But this is what Jesus prayed for. Father, unify them as believers so the world will witness this unity and they will say, there is no way in the world that could ever happen unless Jesus Christ is who he really says he is, the Son of God. But I got to be honest with you, for that to become a reality, it's going to require all churches that adhere to the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose three days later to verify he was the one who could take away the sins of the world. It's never going to happen to all churches who believe that are unified around Jesus Christ and the gospel, loving one another, partnering with one another to reach their communities and change the world. See, that was Jesus' global strategy. Now, let's be honest. That hasn't exactly happened, has it? And maybe it's the reason the world's so screwed up. In fact, more screwed up than ever. And I think it's because the world looks at all of our churches. They see Hope over here and Summit over here and Colonial Baptist over here and Peace Presbyterian over here and St. Michael's Catholic over here and Apex Methodist over here. And then we got the Greek Orthodox, you know, down the road, you know, church. And they see all of these churches and they see our competition and they see our pride and they see our independence. And I think they look at us and like, wow, you guys can't even agree on what you believe. I mean, think about it. Did you know that right now in Acts chapter 2, the church began, there was one church. Did you know that there are 216 denominations in the United States right now that are based on the same gospel that we teach here? But we can't get along, so we got to come up with 216 denominations because a little something here we disagree with or a little something over here we disagree. So, I, 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 like, you guys can't even agree on what you believe. You certainly don't practice what you believe because I don't see you loving one another and accepting one another. And forgiving one another. You talk a good game, but I, I don't see you really living it out. So if that's what you're selling, this is what the world's saying, I'll pass. Now, as I said before, my Christian journey has not exactly been characterized by unity. I just grew up in an incredible legalistic Baptist church, you know, piano, organ, you know, and we were known for what we didn't believe. We were segregated. Do you know when African-Americans tried to attend a church I grew up in, they started an afternoon church service for African-Americans. Oh, I've lived through those days, people. See, we didn't drink. We didn't dance. I had to carry a note to PE in the second grade explaining to my PE teacher that I wasn't allowed to square dance because dancing's sinful. Oh, yeah. Actually, it was a nice thing. That was square dancing stupid. But anyway, you know. <laughs> I never went to a movie till I married that little hussy from California and she took me to my first movie. You know why? They taught me growing up, if you go to see Snow White, they're going to take the profits from that money and make porn. I've seen a few Disney movies now. That may be happening. I don't know. I don't know. 
Rock music, rock music, that's Satan's music. I had one really bad rock Satan album, Chicago Saturday in the park. I couldn't play it unless my parents were gone. Then I could play it on the record player. Don't worry, young people. Well, somebody will tell you what that is. But I couldn't, I couldn't play it loud because my neighbors went to my church, and they were like little Nazis. They would turn you in. I'm telling you, so you just kind of live like this isolationist, right? But boy, God has a sense of humor because I met Laura. And we got engaged, and I went to her church in Southern California. Grace was the name of it. And there were two guys and a girl that had the audacity to get on stage with a guitar and sing a song. And I thought, oh, no, my fiancé is going to hell <laughs> with the rest of this church. They're all going to hell, Right? And now I pastor a church, you come on the weekend, it's like a combination of Aerosmith, Maroon 5, Katy Perry, and Need to Breathe. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a circus, all the lights going on up here, right? right. So I, it's been a journey for me, it's been a journey for me. But one day I came to the realization, Jesus prayed this. We gotta at least try to be a part of the answer. I know it's not easy. And you know what hit me one day? God didn't call me to build a mega church. He called me to work and spend my life to do my part to be unified with other believers so the world would look at it and say, wow, Jesus Christ must be who he said he is. So a couple of years ago, Gary and I, we got together with some pastors we would never hang out with before. All different colors, ethnicities, you know, styles of worship, some very charismatic. I am the least charismatic person in the world. I mean, I grew up the Holy Spirit with somebody that jumped out from behind a tree and went, boop, and scared you. You know, I'm just learning now to love the Holy Spirit. It's taking me that long. And I mean, those guys are praising the Lord for everything. Like, oh, look at those butter beans. Praise the Lord. I mean, I just never been around people like that. And we were all sitting around, but you know what we found? We all love the gospel. We all love Jesus Christ. Yeah, we may see things differently, but you know what Paul preached? Hey, if they're teaching the gospel, who am I to judge? And we had the most incredible time and a bunch of pastors that had never sat down in a room together. We walked out and we thought, man, you know what? If it all begins and ends with the gospel and we don't care who gets the credit, there's probably no telling what we could do to reach our community and change the world. See, we can't do that by ourselves. We cannot change the world by ourselves. We had 23,000 people on Christmas Eve. Whoopee. That's 1% of the triangle. Just so you know, we're trying to get PNC Arena next year for Christmas Eve. Pray about that. We're going to open up the community. We want to bring all of our churches, all of our campuses together. We think we can have 60,000 people hear the gospel on Christmas Eve at the PNC Arena. It's going to be incredible. Whoopee, that means we've reached like 3% of the triangle. See, we can't do it by ourselves. It's going to require a major paradigm shift where we decide, you know what, if it's going to happen, if the world's going to change, if we're going to be unified, we're going to have to break down these walls and we're going to have to decide to partner with other churches to build God's kingdom and to change the world. And we're taking some steps. We're taking some steps. I've assigned some of my staff, Gary Vett, to do nothing but build relationships with other pastors in the community. We now set aside 1% of our budget. doesn't sound like a lot, but we have a $20 million budget this year. That means we've set aside $200,000 to invest in other churches in our community to make them healthier. Nothing to do with Hope Community Church. What can we do to improve your health? Because we don't just need more churches. We need more healthy churches. And this is where the minor project comes in. When you return the money, we're going to take some of this money and we're going to give it to gospel teaching 
gospel-centered churches in the triangle who could never afford to do this to have their own minor project. We're going to give them a check. And then this is what we've said. Whatever you raise and multiply, you keep 20% for yourself. Maybe you're building a building, keep 20%. Maybe you need to hire a staff person. There's a project you have in the community. Maybe there's a mission. You keep 20%. We're going to keep 20% for ourselves. Let me tell you what we're going to do with the 20%. I'm going to set aside enough money for two years to buy dinner every Saturday night and every Sunday night at the Apex and the Raleigh campus. So on Saturday night, a single parent with kids can come to the early service, have dinner with their kids, and then have their small group on the campus while their kids are in Kid City. And they can happen, that same thing happens on Sunday night at Apex. Come to the early service, have dinner that we are taking care of with your kids, and then the kids can go off back to Kid City, and you get to have your small group at the Apex campus. That's the investment that we're going to make in the single parents of our church because I believe they are the widows and the widowers that the Bible talks about. Those are the ones that we have to address. So we're going to use part of our 20% for that. And then our Agape campus, by the way, I don't think you realize this, but our Agape church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti is the largest church in the nation of Haiti. I mean, that, that God has done some amazing stuff there. But they do a ministry with vulnerable women where they bring women in who've been abused and just shattered. Their lives have been shattered and they're helping them put their lives back together. They're mentoring them. They're leading them into a relationship with Jesus. They're discipling them. They're rebuilding their self-esteem. They're giving them job skills so that they can go back out in the community. We're going to give them a gift so that they can enlarge that ministry and reach more women. And then whatever's left over in that 20%, uh, our Agape campus down there on their own bought property, and they're building a community center, kind of like our Apex campus, right, to reach the community and worship in on Sunday. So we're just going to give the rest of our 20% to them to get that accomplished. And then we're asking every church to bring the 80% back together and we're going to give it to an organization that is called Stadia. And I want you to see their mission statement. Their mission statement is until every child has a church. We're going to plant churches until every child has a church. Do you know why that's important? 85% of people who become Christians do so under the age of 18, before the age of 18. So if we have churches that reach children, we're going to see more people come to know Jesus Christ. And I was down, I had to speak at a little, con actually a big conference, down in Orlando last year, but I, they, they, this, their, they had a banquet for Stadia. I wasn't aware of what they were doing. I was so impressed by them that we committed right then, we gave $75,000 to them to plant a church. So somewhere this weekend, there's a church in America, I don't care where, there's a church in America where people are hearing the gospel the first time because of the generosity of you at Hope Community Church. But being around them, why, why they're so successful, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Lives are being changed. Now, why did we pick Stadius? Because 90% of all the churches they start are still on mission and growing after five years. That is an incredible statistic. The next best statistic I could find was 60%. Okay, and I think the reason is, and Gary and Vet and I got, went to Ohio to see them assess the pastors and their wives that were going to go into church planning. I, me, me and Gary went back to the hotel and said, man, they'd have never picked us, right? But they put them through the ringer. They want to make sure they have the right gift mix and that their marriages are strong and that their finances are solid before they send them out. So it's incredible what they do. But not only that, the churches that they start or have a 67% higher attendance than other churches that are being started. Now, you may be asking, why do we need to start more churches? It seems like we have plenty of churches in America. Well, did you know that 3,700 churches in America close their doors every year? 3,700 churches in America shut down and sell their facility every year. Then add to that that within the next 30 years, 
they're predicting that the population on planet Earth is going to grow by 2 billion. That's a lot of people. That means that we need to be starting just in the United States 8,600 churches a year just to stay even with our influence of being salt and light. You know what? We're starting about half of that. So we need to get involved in that. We need to start twice as many churches, and then that doesn't even talk about globally, where they never even have heard the name of Jesus Christ. So Stady is serious about planting churches who are committed to planting other churches. See, it's not about addition. It's about multiplication until every child has a church. But this is the cool thing about Stadia. They don't charge any of these pastors that are going out anything. They don't charge them to go through the assessment process. They don't charge them for the infrastructure they help them set up, the strategy they help them develop. They set up accounting systems for them and give them all the software and all to do that. They mentor them monthly, every month. getting. They do all of these things, and it's absolutely free. It's only because of people that give that these churches can be planted and lives can be changed. So we're going to be a part of this. Now think about this. What if we take our $110,000 and multiply it 10 times? We've done that before. We would have over a million dollars. And then we give it to other churches in the community and they multiply it. And what if we come up with two or $3 million that's gonna start churches just like Hope all over the world? Let me ask you a question. Has Hope Community Church impacted your life? your kids, your family. Can you imagine having churches like that all over the world? And this is what it says in Luke 16, verse 9. Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. Now, a lot of people think, well, that just means if, if, you, if you invest in other people, you, you kind of buy your way into heaven. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this. He says, when you use your wealth, when you use what God entrusted to you to make a difference in the kingdom of God, when you get to heaven, there are going to be people there waiting on you to welcome you because they're there because of your sacrifice. Can you imagine walking into heaven and some kid run up to you from Gary, Indiana and say, you don't know me, but I grew up in Gary, Indiana. My mom was a single parent and she had drug problems, but a church came to town that you invested in to be there. And, and they love children. And I went and I, and I heard the gospel and it changed my life. And finally, I got my mom to go and we got her clean and it changed her life. And not only did it change our life on earth, we're in heaven today because of you. Or some little girl from Chicago or some little redneck kid from Lizard Lick or, you know, some brown kid from Sao Paulo, Brazil or an incredibly poor child from maybe Bongay, Central Africa Republic. And they're there, man, I'm here because of you. Thank you. I'm going to tell you something. If there's not something inside of you that gets a little excited about that, I don't even know if you really have met Jesus yourself. Because I'm telling you, that's what he left us here to do. But see, now it's up to you. And we're just trusting as leaders here at Hope that you're going to be good managers of, of God's resources and you may think that we're crazy. Look around. You know, trust this crowd? Are you kidding me with this kind of cash? But I want to remind you that God trusts us with everything we have every day. So we're just following suit. And if you're feeling some pressure right now and some burden about the money that's in that envelope and how you're going to handle it, good. Good. You know why? That means you understand the parable of the mina. Because that envelope that you're holding with that little bit of money in your hand is just a reminder of how you're to handle the resources that God has given you, your time, your treasure, your talent, every day. 
It's an eternal investment. The returns and the dividends never end. It is timeless. Timeless. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work. And we're going to pray that God does more than we could ever ask or imagine. We're going to pray that he'll blow our minds. Father, you're an awesome God. Thank you that you even allow us to partner with you. You could have the rocks cry out. You could have animals and angels share the gospel. You chose us. That's plan A. There is no plan B. And if one thing to talk about reaching the triangle and changing the world, it's another thing to say, you know what, let's do it. Let's make a difference in the world. And this is what you've called us to. And may we use this little object lesson as a great opportunity to bless and encourage other churches to show that we're not in competition, that we're all in this together. And Father, we pray now as Jesus prayed, and we thank you for all of those who are going to become believers because of what's about to happen. And we give you the credit because you're just that kind of God who has promised you'll show up and do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We pray all these things in your son's Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 